Hi there. Welcome to HR Shop Talk. I'm your host, Andrea Adams. This show delves into the details of HR through conversations with smart, experienced, and successful professionals who've done the work. You can also find me on YouTube where you can interact with me and other people like yourself. Today, my guest is Kessie Stevens. Kessie is a consultant who spent years at WCB and is also super knowledgeable about OHS. Hi, Kessie. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, thanks for coming back. And I'm interested in this one. I was in a role where I was the responding to WCB claims type. Oh, and, okay. Uh, so now I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this angle. Okay, so let's get going though. Mostly we talk about avoiding WCB claims, as I said. You talk about, well, you also talk about preparing. Why? Why do you take that angle? Because when you have a claim, anything in disability management, whether it's a short-term or long-term claim or a workers' compensation claim, um, you have to be prepared because it's never going to go linearly or straight. There's always going to be a problem or a complication. And, and if you're prepared for that, you can address it and it's just a road bump versus having to stop and question things and processes and wonder what to do or how to handle situations. So it's important to be prepared. Um, disability management is also a part of risk management. And, and the goal of risk management is to have as, as little loss as possible in your organization. So if you're taking it um, from that perspective, being prepared is another step in reducing potential loss. Okay, so we're gonna, I would just wanna back up a little bit. So what are an employer's responsibilities relative to WCB claims and, and what should they be doing to prepare? What are some of those activities? The, the first thing, the first responsibility an employer has when there is a claim or when they're notified of a claim is of course they need to make sure that their worker has the medical attention um, that, that will help them immediately. But they also need to report the claim within 72 hours to the workers' compensation board. And that- Yes. Is that consistent across all provinces, that 72 hours, or can that vary, or do you know? Um, the last time I checked, uh, that was what it is across most provinces. I didn't, I, I looked across a bunch of different provinces actually recently, um, just to make sure. And from what I remember, that is what it was. I know like for, for Western Canada, um, 72 hours to report, but you should remember that that um, 72 hours, you think of that as three days, but it's not three business days. It also potentially includes a weekend, which can be a sticking point for, for some companies, uh, especially when a long weekend is coming up and a worker reports something like on a, a Thursday evening or a Friday morning and it doesn't get to, to the reporting person at the company until the end of that day. Um, you can't say, I'm going to wait till Tuesday to report this. You've got those, you know, um, either Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, um, it still needs to get in. I often recommend for companies when they're making the policy that they, the policy is written to, um, to report to the board no later than 48 hours, so you have a bit of a cushion. Okay. But the sooner, the sooner, the better. And if an employer is consistently reporting late, um, 
that's tracked. So it's important to report on time. It's important to give the information that they ask for as soon as possible when they ask for it so that they can do their process of helping that injured worker, whether it's lost wages or more information about the nature of the injury or the nature of the job, especially around progressive injuries where you don't know exactly when they started, but it was something that built up over a period of time. So it's important to to respond in a timely manner with ongoing ongoing responses and 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 what's being requested of you. And then that also ties into reducing potential loss and keeping things going at a good pace. Um, so when we talk about being prepared for a claim, are you primarily talking about having the 72 hours, you know, the processes in place so that you can respond within 72 hours? Oh, I could talk about preparation for days. Um, preparation. <laughs> okay. How about some other, just the, the highlights? Yeah, the highlights. Um, so preparation for claims, we touched on this a little bit last time, but it's also about, um, of course, having your policies in place, hiring right, uh, right? So your workers, people you're hiring are physically and potentially mentally able to do the job that they were hired for. Um, so making sure that you're hiring right and you're very upfront with the demands of the job. And that, that I think that should be reflected in job postings. Um, mm -hmm. Some employers do pre-employment testing, uh, especially with some more physical kind of industry or if they see an aging workforce, um, things like that. Um, and, and yeah, and in your orientation, letting your workers know that you have this program with that what your expectations are of them and what their expectations of you as an employer should be. And letting them know and sign off that they're aware of a modified work program and that they're aware of the violence and harassment um, prevention program at your company, things like that. And then systems in place to make sure that you're following, following that and that you know um, as an employer what's expected of you um, to coordinate, coordinate your employees. So that's things like pre-prepared modified work programs where you know what kind of alternate work they can do. If you're in a union environment, um, are there any sticking points with that union around that, that kind of work or how can they help support you and the worker return to full duties? Are we doing modified work at home if necessary? Um, being flexible with hours and shifts if that needs to happen. So having systems in place for that, but of course hiring right, making sure you have your policies and, and having a modified or an alternate work program is um, the three basic ones, I would say. I want to talk a little bit about modified work programs you talked about, and that's something that you might have somehow prepared in advance. Like every employee's injuries are different, but can you talk about how you might be prepared? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, every employee's um, injuries are different and uh, every or different workers, depending on their injury, will have different levels of fitness and restrictions post-accident. But when you think about modified work, there's different levels. There's basic levels of capability. So the first level is sedentary. So a worker might be classified as sedentary for their, for their modified restrictions. And then sedentary is kind of like an office work, um, very minimal movement. And with that, you think, um, what do we have that's sedentary? for our workforce, for our employees, and what can we provide for them? So sometimes that might be 
taking upgrading on any classes that the worker might be behind on in their program. Yep. It could be uh, assisting with any kind of documentation or reviews like that. It could be um, reviewing maybe some of your, your safety documentation and auditing your safety documentation to make sure that that is up to a certain standard. The one thing with sedentary work is um, you're sitting still at a computer, but you if your company is operating in English and your workers aren't strong in English, that might not be the best option for that worker. So you have to think about, about that and what you can fit into, into your program so that modified work is meaningful, the worker is getting value out of it, and the company is getting some value. Obviously, providing modified work, you're paying the worker, they're at work, and the board is not paying the worker. Yeah. Um, so you're saving a lot of money on your premiums, and you're also avoiding time loss days, which is really important if that's um, a factor that plays into your relationship with your contractors or your bidding. Yeah. Then there's um, light level of, of modified, which is where you can lift up to 10 pounds, uh, they can move around, walk a little bit more. So some examples of more light kind of modified work, you know, depending on the other subcategory of restrictions could be doing inspections on the work site, mm -hmm. um, assisting with supervision, assisting maybe with driving in between sites, if they are clear to drive, things like that. Then the next level is medium, which is usually classified as, um, lifting, I think it's up to 50 pounds, depending again on the restrictions, but there's there are different charts and classifications. And what can they do within that medium level? Um, and that would count if their job is at a heavy or very heavy yeah, level, yeah. right? Once they reach their pre-accident level, the board will see their, their role is finished hmm. in terms of, of monitoring it. And then there might be some ongoing medical expenses or follow-up, but, but they've reached that pre-accident level. Hmm. Um, another thing to consider, when you're developing your modified program is the location. Uh, is there a different location we can move this worker to to accommodate it or um, hours? Are we going to start with part-time hours and then work our way up if that's necessary? And that's something that the, the medical treatment providers can help help you um, coordinate along with the with your, your case manager, your case worker. Um, but in, in general for modified, it should it, there it has to be meaningful um, and there has to be value to it. And if you can identify those tasks in advance, you can slide the worker right into that. So some objections I've heard to that will come, stuff like that, will come from the crew where they feel like the injured workers cherry picking the best work and that, mm -hmm. um, you know, for the health of the people who are doing the work, they need this lighter component so that they're, you know, it's good for their muscles or whatever. What's your take on that? There's a lot in that question. Sometimes there is a myth that a worker will get re-injured um, or or there's this, there's this what if and worst case scenario yes. Um, yes. imagination. Right. But there's also... Um, there's also, it also depends on, on how your supervisors are trained because just like, like in OHNS legislation, a supervisor needs to make sure the workers have, have the tools to do the job and that they're capable and competent. And they're also responsible for the safety of the people they directly supervise. Mm -hmm. And, and that should be built into your supervisor training programs, their job descriptions and expectations, because at the end of the day, you don't want to be, especially if you have like, um, you know, construction environment where people are out in the field or out in the shop. You don't want to be sending every modified worker to the HR department 
and saying, find something for this guy to do. Sometimes um, the workers feel bullied by the crew or um, they internalize that they're hurt and, and they're doing something a little bit different. And it's up to the supervisor to make sure that that's not happening for the people that they're responsible for. And sometimes that's a really serious problem with companies. And one thing that I've done in the past that that helps is a, a training for supervisors where they also understand the financial impact. Uh, yes. Some supervisors are more like, you know, people, people persons. And then some, when they understand the business aspect of it, that's what, what it takes to get them on board. Okay. So we've covered a lot of ground here and I think we've already covered some of the mistakes, but maybe you can summarize or maybe you'll have something to add. What are the mistakes that employers are making around WCB claims and preparation? Uh, some of the big ones are uh, when an employer, uh, it kind of lays back and isn't proactive with the claim. Mm -hmm. So for example, they might have a worker who has rolled an ankle. Um, maybe he's been sent home. So you're getting, you're getting those rising costs. So not being conscious of that. And then assuming that the board is going to handle all of it and you don't have to have an active role because the board might not handle it or, or they might not follow up as in as timely of a way as you can. And so I would recommend if you as an employer have, have a claim and, and even if a worker is on modified work, set in your calendar regular times that you're going to contact the worker, mm -hmm. you know, and then, and then they know too, and they have that peace of mind mm -hmm. and then set in your calendar regular times to follow up uh, with the, with the caseworker mm. so that you, because if you miss something important um, that could cost you a lot of money or it could be missing information and, and you can't count that they're going to call you every time and follow up. Right. So, so being proactive that way, I think is the most important thing. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of employers make. And then, and then it's too late. And then you get your, your premium statement the next year. And, and you're like, Oh, look at this, like a claim that affected us two years ago um, because there's a leg year. Um, we should have paid more attention to it. And now we're in hot water. So now we've talked about being proactive this whole time and, and being prepared, but let's just say all that you've, you've got a claim, some, employee got injured, what should an employer be doing? And, and what mistakes are you seeing post-injury? I guess that general lack of communication. And um, another thing would be assuming that everything is going okay with your worker mm. and not checking in. Oh. That's the big one. Okay. Um, not making the worker feel included with the rest of the company activities and yeah. crews. So let's say you had someone who was severely injured and away from work, or they were away from work for a little bit because they were having a surgery and they're going to come back. And it was your regular monthly barbecue, invite them to come out. Don't make them feel left out that way. Another thing is workers might need extra supports that you can provide for them. So that could be anything from helping them with transportation issues to maybe they need some extra equipment to do their physical therapy. You can certainly pay for that for them. And then doing those regular check-ins. And, yeah. and if there is anything, inviting them to communicate that to you and then doing what you can to address it. And if you can't, if it's something that is not related to the claim or unrealistic, explaining why. Uh, you talked about paying for stuff, you know, before the board has a chance so you don't get penalized and charged for that. Uh, how do you know that it's medically justified? 
Yeah. So what I when I say paying for stuff, I mean um, services that the board doesn't have to pay for. They do have to pay for your your doctor appointments if they directed it. Yeah. Your physical therapy, you know, yep. your surgeries, things like that. But they don't have to pay for your taxis, your interpreters, which are very expensive, and they will pay for that. The hotels for the workers if they're traveling, mileage. If you're reimbursing your workers for that stuff, that can save significant costs on your claims. Mm -hmm. So, so you can you can arrange that with the worker and in your program up front, and then the costs that really apply to the claim are going to be there. So it's going to be medical and any potential time loss or if it comes to the point where the worker needs vocational, that's going to be on there as well. Okay, so earlier, uh, and we've spent a lot of time talking about employer responsibilities, but what about the employee? What's their responsibility? We, we covered that a little bit, but um, employees should you know participate in the program. They should be honest about how they're feeling, mm-hmm. um, either, either um, with the whole process or how they're feeling in their recovery. Mm-hmm. If they feel like something's not being addressed, um, they do need to, to advocate for that. And as an employer, you can encourage that. And, and I say that because uh, if you address everything as soon as possible, you're not you're going to get a lower risk of having a potential claim reopen and an extra cost added. Mm-hmm. Or um, if the worker has a problem and they need a referral to a specialist, if that's not addressed, um, you know, it's it's going to it's going to creep up again. Mm-hmm. So, so being honest and, and about where they're at physically in the recovery and, and also allowing themselves to be educated on their recovery, because uh, sometimes I've seen like a worker have a back strain and, and even though it's significant and expected to last eight weeks, it doesn't mean that there's structural damage. It doesn't mean that there's a need for surgery. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times um, worker education is important and encouraging them to ask questions to their treatment providers and their caseworker and and understanding that and then trusting that that process for the treatment that they're undergoing i think that's another responsibility um that that does need some handholding right because you don't you don't go into a claim knowing the process or or necessarily about your your injuries or recovery or conditions and also being honest about things like if, if you've been asked to go to physical therapy, for example, the board is going to ask you to go either on your on your own hours or at the beginning or end of your workday. Mm-hmm. So if you're booking your own treatment mm-hmm. sessions, try to book it in that time. Don't, don't book it at lunch and think, well, I'm going to go over lunch or right after lunch and then I'm not going to come back to work for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. That can be frustrating for employers and for the board and it can be hindering to recovery. Yeah. And, and of course, when there is an injury, you need to build up your endurance also. Um, so it's important to, to try to be at work as much as possible and, and participate in the process. So we've spent the whole, the whole thing talking about how to prepare. What about how to avoid them in the first place? I know this is probably where you talk about OH&S, but maybe do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so if you have a good safety program and, and it's running well, then the goal of your program is to reduce injuries and loss in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and you can manage your claims, you know, as tightly as possible and and as, as good as you can, and you can do everything right on your claims management. But if you're getting a ton of injuries and, and have a high trip score, for example, that's not going to reduce 
your premiums, it's not going to help your workforce. You know, you're going to have, you're going to keep having that loss. So mm -hmm. having a strong safety system in place yeah. where you have good commitment from upper management first, right? you have um, good systems and processes in place that work for your employees. It doesn't bog them down. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of safety now is around hyper-compliance and a safety employee might find themselves spending way too much time updating different softwares versus being in the field where they need to be. There's a lot of, of over hyper compliance okay. in, in the industry. So when you develop your program, look at what's working and what's not working and what can you double up on or, or draw back so still meeting your requirements, but making it realistic for your workforce. So some companies, a worker's bonus is on how many hazard IDs have I done? Mm -hmm. And and you're going to keep getting the same kind of hazard identifications just so they can tick that box mm -hmm. versus looking at what kind of incidents have we had? Do we have a trend in something? And, and how can we reduce this? Or what kind of proactive things can we put in place, um, which are called uh, leading indicators, yeah. to to reduce incidents at our workforce. Right. So having a good program that is realistic to your workforce is important because then you get their buy-in. You don't get that um, forgetting or, or complacency, mm -hmm. um, which can lead to incidents or lack of, lack of proper training. So making sure and involving your, your workers and your, your key players, your key supervisors, that's essential and also in terms of your safety program, but even your whole company program, making sure that your staff have the resources they need to do the job the right way. So that could be the right training. Mm -hmm. It could be the right equipment mm -hmm. um, to do the job properly, or it could be building that culture for the company where workers feel safe to speak up mm -hmm. about any concerns. And that ultimately falls on, on your corporate culture Mm -hmm. which of course is driven by the top. When we, when we meet new clients who have WCB issues, you know, more often, pretty much all the time, they also have HR issues or they have issues with procurement or they have issues with theft. Um, so it's more, your safety program performance is more of a symptom of a deeper problem or, or something that's going well. Oh. Um, the nice thing, about WCB is that you get you have the potential to get money back and you have the right. potential to measure and be better than than your peers and that I think that's a great benchmark um, but it's also a reflection I think of everything else going on in the company well thanks Kessie that was informative we've reached the end of this episode thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time when I talk shop with another insightful guest <laughs>